Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, welcome to the 356th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Andrew Bourne. I'm Matt Enlo. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Roxanne Benjamin on the podcast. She is a producer and director. She just directed a movie called There's Something Wrong with the Children. It's going to be on MGM Plus and Epics. She made it with Blumhouse. She's made a lot of movies, both directing and producing. She produced the VHS film franchise, Southbound as well. She's like mired in horror. And she's also done a ton of like genre TV as well. She's directed episodes of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Nancy Drew, Pretty Little Liars, Riverdale, Creep Show. I mean, she's kind of got a pretty rad, rad resume. Killing it. It was a really fun conversation. The only thing on her resume that I'm not a huge fan of is that she was on Making Movies is Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's like a 50% overlap. I think our approach getting into like someone's background is different. Making movies is hard. Maybe comes in a little bit more project based and we come in a little bit more career based. That's interesting. We end up kind of finding a lot of the same info out, but I'm curious for our listeners, email us at justshootapod at gmail.com. Let us know if you see we have a guest that you've already heard on a different podcast. Do you skip the episode? Are you interested to hear our point of view with that guest? Let me ask you, Oren. Yes. Say you're listening to The Business and... The Town. Business and The Town. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, Jason Blum is on both podcasts that week. Do you listen to both? I would listen to Jason Blum if it was like a year apart, you know, on a, yeah. a different podcast. Obviously, we love Ulrich and Liz at Making Movies is Hard and... You know, we know a lot of the other podcasters. Show Don't Tell with Noam Kroll, Alex Ferrari at Indie Film. We're just yeah, name dropping film. all of the different shows you could be listening to in addition to ours. Yeah. We're always hanging out with, uh, what's his name? The DP. The Wandering One? No, no. The <laughs> Roger Deacon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're junior Deacons. members of Team Deacons. <laughs> the point is... While we are fans of all of them, if we do get pitched a guest that has just been on one of those shows, we'll probably avoid them because we want to make a show that we would want to listen to. And that is a show that doesn't feel like it's doing the circuit that you've heard on a bunch of different shows. So I'm, I'm really curious about that. That said, we had an awesome chat with Roxanne. I loved talking to her about her life and like the sustainability of a career in indie film and how, from my reading of it, her TV career kind of came in. Obviously, she likes to do TV and it's, she does great work and she's working on 
awesome, awesome shows that I would kill to direct. But also there's a financial side of things that is really difficult to maintain in the indie film world that Mm -hmm. she's filling in with the TV directing world. For some reason, I'm like obsessed with figuring out how to make a life (laughs) and a living and a comfortable, happy life while also being a full-time filmmaker. It's, uh, you know, not so trivial. Would you like to know the answer? Uh, Does it start with a J? No, what well, does just shoot it? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah, uh, so basically, the answer is you make passion projects, whether that's to get notoriety. That notoriety then leads to commercial work, i.e., commercials and television, and then you continue to shoot passion projects, rinse and repeat. It's just hard because it's like a shooting a feature as a passion project, quote unquote, is a, it's a lot. But if you had a, a cool indie darling that people had seen they'd want to hire you to make better commercials bigger budget commercials you know yeah i mean the day we're recording this it's january 19th i think sundance is just kind of starting right now and mm-hmm. january is that month where you see all the all your friends at sundance yeah. at, at sundance I, you know it's funny sundance you know was a, a tiny bit of a bummer not a bummer but you know that fomo f- sort of vibe but i feel mm-hmm. like the south by announcements i was like oh boy It'd be fun to be at South by right now. You know, the other thing that this conversation with Roxanne made me think of is that this isn't an original thought, but we're really living in like kind of a new golden era of independent horror films. And obviously A24 is doing so much with quote unquote elevated horror, but like Blumhouse is kind of the most exciting studio making movies right now. And I think the breadth of what a a horror movie can be, I think, uh, is kind of expanding again. If you classify Black Phone and Megan as the same genre, then that's a pretty elastic genre. And get out. Yeah. 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 You can make like like a race oriented psychological horror comedy and like an adventure thriller and like a camp killer robot movie. And they're all quote-unquote horror movies made by the same studio sign me up well before we talk to roxanne i've actually been dying to know what have you been working on lately i've been working on the same commercial campaign for a long time i can't i'm shooting it next week but that's not what i want to talk about with you warren i'm going to surprise you with something that i've been thinking about a lot lately i'm unsurprisable Mm, we'll see go for it as a relatively new father, I have a one-year-old. You know, there's a lot, lots of things that you know you're going to love, and there are lots of things you know are going to be hard, and there's some stuff that's surprising on both ends of the spectrum. But one of the things that I think is worth bringing up is that story time, right? You have a bedtime routine. You're trying to teach your kid to, like, wind down and to expect to go to bed when you start doing a certain routine of things. And the story is often one of those things. And it's basically the cornerstone of our bedtime routine. And as a result, I'm thinking a lot about children's books. And I've mm-hmm. been like, you know, there's a handful of like great Twitter threads that I, you know, bought a lot of books. I, uh, my parents brought books that I had cherished as a kid. My wife had some that, you know, we have like a really, I would say, awesome collection of bedtime stories that I'm really excited about. And two things. One, I've engaged in storytelling in a really meaningful and deep way that I kind of forgotten about. Like stories are so important. They're so essential. It's a spiritual thing. And to like be guiding your child through their very first experience of story is incredible. Love it. Fully endorsed. But the other thing that's interesting about children's books is that they do not follow 
conventional rules the way that we expect a quote-unquote story to be. Like a cow could not possibly jump over the moon. I don't know. <laughs> well, what, what, when, when you're talking about a cow jumping over the moon, that cow didn't start out a humble cow and then have an inciting incident that decided to compel them into jumping over the moon. And then in the midpoint, they didn't think they could jump over the moon. And then by the end of the third act, they've actually jumped over the moon, come back to earth, a changed and reborn cow who's had catharsis. There's no Cambellian storytelling. There's no three act structure in good night moon. Good night moon's an abstract, crazy book. I think there's a three act structure, but hard disagree in, in good night moon. I will send you a New Yorker article about the woman who wrote that book and how she's like a radical feminist from the thirties, like huge, like public figure who spent all of her money on like Cadillacs and travel and stuff like that. And kind of died poor, had a, foundation in like abstract painting and uh, child psychology and was like children don't have any ground for what's normal or not so like don't worry about story structure I mean everybody poops there's no story to that it's still a great book so there's room for all sorts of storytelling is what yeah, I'm saying no, but I, I hear what you're saying you're kind of inspired by seeing the rules being broken but still being incredibly satisfying Incred incredibly satisfying yeah I think it's interesting to think about how like a lot of the classics that we think of or the, you know, those kind of, you know, lauded books come out of like the 60s, 70s, 80s, like kind of more experimental storytelling times as well. 30s even. Anyway, that's what I've been meditating on and enjoying a lot thinking about and just kind of, again, re-experiencing story through the lens of a incredible little youngster. Uh, well, Oren, I've been dying to know what have you been working on lately? Well, I have... Some exciting news. It kind of happened a while ago, but I actually don't think I've spoken about it on the podcast, which I did end up selling the scripted podcast to Audible, working with Temple Hill, the publishers of the Twilight Movies, the Hunger Games, all these things. We've been talking a lot about if the show ultimately gets made, do we put from the creators of Twilight, from the creators of, mm -hmm. you know, the Hunger Games, whatever, like finding their, they have a bunch of different shows with Audible. And each one kind of is tied to a different property of theirs that's famous. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so ours is kind of supposed to be the Twilight one. So we're trying to figure out what's Twilight of today and like, how can we take the best parts of Twilight, the parts that made it such so catchy and like inspired like this whole genre of films, but leave the stuff that feels like it's from the early 2000s, you know, on our story, we have our damsel in distress is more is like a man and our kind of supernatural person that like is saving him as, as a woman. So we kind of flipped that, but we're, we still have like a lot of this forbidden love kind of mm -hmm. going in there and just like cool supernatural background stories and things and events that happen. It's been interesting figuring out how to like borrow and angle our story to get the best parts of this IP, mm -hmm. but not the parts that people might think are like a little like you know yesterday's news but it's exciting we have kind of the deals like built-in steps so our first step is congrats man thanks the first step is um you know handing them a, a synopsis and an outline mm -hmm. for the entire show and then if they when they approve that we do the pilot when they approve that we do like another 11 episodes and L let um, me ask you how does this affect your work life what sort of workload are you looking at in this first step and how are you intending to tackle it so we have a meeting on thursday a week from today the day this episode comes out with the audible 
people to get kind of their feedback on our initial pitch so that as we're coming back to them with a new synopsis and outline, we're addressing their notes. So right now, we've had a lot of ideas of how to kind of keep developing the story, but our approach is going to be like, before we start, you know, completely rewriting this whole thing, let's at least hear the notes. And it's not like, you know, in a commercial, it's like, Hey, are you available at nine 30? Let's go do that. Like, yeah, it's like, we'll schedule something a week and a half away from now. Temple Hill, who we're doing this with, they really are come firmly from the book world. So I think they're used to like saying like, Hey, you have three months to go write a first draft, come back to us. You know, it seems like a lot less like, Mm -hmm. Okay, you got two days for this, three days for that, and five days for that. Like, so we'll we'll see how it goes. But I, it, my general idea, and I do not know if this is how it'll end up at all, is that my writing partner and I will do the outline and synopsis. We'll get notes from everyone. Then we will write the pilot together, and then once that is approved, we'll. The dream would be to build like a very small room, like a, like add two more people, like maybe like a more seasoned showrunner type, and maybe more of like a younger like churner of, of pages, mm-hmm. you know, but that have some variety and like background and hopefully like are interested in this genre, kind of like supernatural YA genre. So yeah, so we'll see. The other thing I was going to tell you real quick is my wife was, she booked a, a commercial campaign that she filmed today. And the director is Vince Pione, who's been on our podcast before. It's a commercial. So she has like a one or two lines of dialogues in each spot she's in. And she was saying that Vince was like a really fun director. And she had this line that was kind of like not clinical, but she was like kind of talking about some statistics of the product. She said he just gave her like really easy direction to follow. And I was like, like, what do you mean by that? What's like an example? And she was like, uh, just do it like you've just like you just won the Oscar for this accomplishment, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and do this mm-hmm. like you just woke up. She just kind of rattled off like five or six different things that he said. And I was like, oh yeah, I've done that. You know, I think we've both mm-hmm. done that in the past, but it just kind of reminded me like when she was said his directions were really easy to follow. I was like, oh, is he giving her action verbs? Is he like telling mm-hmm, her like mm-hmm. to seduce the... Excite me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Confide she's like, in me. Yeah. No, it was like a much more like improv game kind of method, which mm-hmm. is like do this as if you are like the queen of England. Whatever, like, you know, just, mm-hmm. just really... biddier almost, yeah. Yeah, giving like... a a big context choice to the delivery of each line. I was like, Oh, that that's fun. That's great. That's really fun. Anyhow, before we talk to Roxanne, I want to remind people we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. It's a place where you can give us a dollar, $2. And at a $20 level, you get a just shoot it. The podcast hat, which has been a huge hit in many households and on many sets. Check it out. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Anything you give us goes back to the podcast. Pay our editor, we pay our hosting fees and we uh, makes us happy. makes us keep going for the many, many years we've done this podcast. Anyhow, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. And now on with the show. A lot can happen in three years, like a chat bot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we're here with Roxanne Benjamin. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to talk to you. Your resume is like the dream resume of anyone. And I feel like you're just like such a perfect fit for our show because we have basically a lot of indie filmmakers and we have a lot of TV directors and we don't have a ton of people. I mean, a lot of them have made the crossover, like like a Maggie Kylie. I don't know if you know her. There, there's like a lot of directors that, you know, they made a couple indies that that did well. And then that transition helped them transition into TV. But I feel like you produced a lot of, you know, indie stuff. And then I don't know, I just feel like you're, you're very, you have a ton of things in both worlds of indie film and TV. And I think it'll be interesting for us to talk about. Yeah, I guess I do at this point. I kind of forget how much TV I've done in the last couple of years. It's funny to hear my <laughs> resume described as the dream. I just look at it and see pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what the show is about: is to take dream resumes and turn them into pain points. Yeah. Into pain. Your dream yeah. equals pain. Like literally, <laughs> that's what I think this podcast is about. Like, commit. Like, people are like, "Ugh, she's so lucky she got to do all this stuff," and then we're like, "Well, she's actually not that lucky." Listen to all these yeah. horror stories. Like, uh-huh. literally. Um, yeah. So you produced the VHS movies, like like three of them, right? Yeah, the first, say, like two and a half. <laughs> The original uh, and the first sequel, and then we were in the middle of making the third one and developing it, and I had brought on a couple of the filmmakers, Justin and Aaron, Nacho, and then I left that company to go work for the producers of Your Next, who were very good friends of mine, and we kind of ran in all the same circles, obviously, from like Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, and had both worked with them and stuff, so... I went to work for them as as a kind of producer underneath them where I learned a lot about producing kind of bigger budget stuff. But what I didn't know at the time was that I was too kind of young and green in the industry to know that I still should have had some rights on that franchise, both creatively and like financially, I guess. So it was kind of a lesson learned sort of thing, especially as the series continues. And uh, I'm kind of the only producer who isn't still involved in the franchise. Can you dig in a little more on that, actually? I think that's really interesting. I think it comes from, and this is kind of one of the reasons I left that company, is like, it kind of gets into the whole backstory of where I came from, which was, I originally had started kind of writing for horror uh, publications when I was in college. And um, when I had first like graduated and was out in LA, and I would just 
drive to film festivals and sleep in my car and I would email every publication and say, I'm here on the ground if you don't mm-hmm. have anyone covering anything. Uh, and Brad Misko is one of the people who got back to me with that, who is and the... And when you say publications, you mean like like your Fangoria's and your Bloody yeah. Disgustings of the world? Bloody Disgustings, that, Dread Central, yeah. Shock, you know, Shock Till You Drop. There was a lot more kind of back then. This is like 2008, 2009, maybe, so... Like you were a fan and then and you wanted to work in this world. And so that's why you did this. Yeah. Um, well... I was a big horror movie fan. I was a big more horror movie fan. uh, And I wanted to work more on the writing and creative side. But um, I still didn't quite really know what I wanted to do at that point. I had just graduated or was in the middle of graduating from like grad school. And my degree was basically in film finance and uh, international acquisitions and co-productions. So it's a very kind of business-oriented, finance-oriented degree called a master's in entertainment industry management, which what the fuck does that mean? Um, (laughs) From (laughs) Carnegie Mellon. And it's a program they have that's almost like a producerial finance program. Yeah. uh, Similar to like a Columbia College program. I think they have like a producing program or the... the, That sounds very prestigious and like most of the things you learned are 100% out of date now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird though, but you know, honestly, it's... It is and it isn't. It's like the industry oh, changes that's, so quickly. That's wonderful. Yeah. The industry changes so quickly that like it is stuff that you have to keep up with. Like it could all be fucking different tomorrow, you know, but uh, the basics are still all the same. And a lot of productions are still put together that way through, you know, international co-production productions and, you know, financing through piecemeal uh, mm-hmm. companies that is put together like your EFMs and your AFMs and stuff like that. So it's where I kind of learned to put together these smaller budget movies. I know everybody kind of comes to that a different way, but it was a very new program. I was in like the second year of it. So it's probably much more kind of corporatized now in the way that, you know, much more structured, but like it was very nebulous at the time when they were building the degree back then. So they had a bunch of like real life executives as our instructors out here in LA for the second year after we did kind of like the core economics finance of a film and stuff on the campus in Pittsburgh. The second year was coming out here and it was like the head of acquisitions at Sony was my acquisitions and, and production uh, professor, you know, so they would tell us all this stuff that it's kind of the shit that you want to know. That's like the I don't know. This is so, it's going to sound so bro-y, but it's like when you first started a gym and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what the etiquette is, you know, mm-hmm. like, and there's just kind of like a layman's terms kind of thing that, that was very much more and almost felt like the blue collar side of things that we learned, I think, from that program at that time. Plus you had all of these, it gave you access to do all the internships and shit, which, you know, your free labor where you're just kind of a fly on the wall and learning a bunch of stuff, which I don't necessarily recommend people to do because I was in six figure debt by the time I was done. And that's no fun for anyone. Uh, that will tell you a little bit more about why I was a producer so long and not a filmmaker. Um, cause I was under mountains of debt. So you're saying producers make more money than filmmakers? That, I don't think any, I don't know who makes money in our business or how they do it at this point, honestly. <laughs> so 
when you were covering these like film festivals and things, was that before you had started producing? Yeah. So basically it was right after I had graduated from this program. Right. And I was working on one of those internships. So like I was saying, the thing that's really, I feel like any sort of film school, and this wasn't any film school, it was really just more business school, honestly, uh, gives you is that access to these internships, or at least back when I was starting out, that's what it did. And that was kind of the, the thing it felt like you were paying for. So I did like a television academy apprenticeship, they called it under the producing director of a show called Medium. And with Patricia Arquette. So I kind of followed him around, Aaron Lipstadt, for like three months and learned all about kind of TV production and directing from him and how he works with the showrunner and all of that stuff. But I also had been a bartender and I made margaritas every Friday for the art department that was right next to his office. And so when I graduated, every, no, there was no jobs because the big, like the writer's strike had happened and then there was the big merger with, William Morris and Endeavor. And so there was like, it felt like hundreds of assistants were suddenly out of work. And so trying to break in either on like an agent or management company or any sort of production assistant level was extremely difficult at the time. The art department from Medium remembered me and they had an opening on house where all of them had kind of moved over to. So because I made margaritas, I got a job on house. (laughs) in their art department. Doing, making margaritas? <laughs> also oh, that, but primarily in the art department. I promise this is getting back to the next, the actual question you asked uh, in a very roundabout way. So as the art department assistant, one of the other things I did during that time was I was writing coverage of horror movie scripts for Slamdance. And that's how I ended up driving up to Park City, telling a bunch of publications that I was in the area, Brad Miskell, answered me and I went and covered a bunch of Sundance Midnights for him, which I could not afford to get into. So basically I started (laughs) writing for him on the side while I was doing all this horror movie coverage while I was working at the art department. Mm -hmm. From there... So you didn't sleep um, at all, is what you're telling us. No, I never slept. You mixed drinks and then you drove to Park City. (laughs) Yes, this is just... But how awesome is that, that you're getting kind of experience on all these different levels? You're reviewing horror films... And then somehow that got you the producing job. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. there's only really two producers. Um, there's a million different types of like segment producers yeah. and executive producers and stuff on VHS, but there's only two like capital P producers and you're one of them. So does that mean you, you touched like every segment? Yeah. From the ground up, basically the company that owns bloody disgusting or owns most of it was looking for a assistant for one of the heads of the company. And since I was writing for Bloody Disgusting, I moved over to that company. That's where I went to from house. And it's because of that connection that I had made from sleeping in my car and driving to this festival and starting to do coverage for the website. That's how it led to me like working for that company. And that was like a production and management company. And they had a lot of kind of other web properties as well. And eventually became more of like digital creation company. But at the time, it was production and management. Mm -hmm. And they mostly did comedy specials, like we did Eddie Izzard specials and like John Leguizamo and a couple other like comedians that they repped. Like we did a lot of their specials back in the day. And uh, since they owned Bloody Disgusting, they were talking about like, how can we get into another way to like monetize that brand since it was such a huge horror brand at the time. And um, 
we kind of came up with this idea of starting this niche production label called Bloody Disgusting Selects that would kind of be like, I I don't want to say low hanging fruit because I love all the movies and I became like the go-to person, which eventually led to me being like the head of acquisitions um, very quickly for this new entity that we had formed. And uh, it'd be the movies that kind of like the, the larger distribution companies weren't interested in because they didn't see much of a profit. So we were a much more niche company releasing mm-hmm. these like foreign language, small horror movies and, and kind of harder material stuff. And, but that led to me and Brad kind of going to all these film festivals all over the world. Um, and he's more of a homebody. So I ended up going to a lot of the international ones just myself and kind of acquiring these films, which then leads to us deciding to like kind of figure out if we can make something of our own and put it out under the label. So you're, you're seeing what's working. Yeah. You're, you're seeing the numbers. And we're meeting all of these yeah, yeah. filmmakers, That's... meeting shit tons right, of filmmakers right. and trying to find stuff to develop with them and, you know, see what their movies are coming up and that kind of thing. And they wanted to get more into the production side uh, at the company. So Brad and Simon Barrett kind of had the idea for VHS and it was originally for almost like a TV pitch of a found footage, like horror anthology show. So the original iteration of it was the idea of making like, well, we'll just shoot like a proof of concept, like TV pilot, which we had done a couple of those for like the comedy people that the company repped, like these little pitch reels or, you know, like a 30 minute pilot for like a proof of concept. Yeah. But I guess it's more than proof of concept because I think of those as more shorter, almost like mood reel, but you're shooting it. These were like full 30 minute, almost like shooting the pilot before the pilot type things. But we kind of figured out we could do that with all of these different filmmakers and we could just make an actual movie and not make it as like a TV pitch, but we just make our own movie and release it through our own label. And then the company would have full ownership of it. They wouldn't just be getting like, you know, a piece of the profit and having to pay out the rest of it. So that's kind of where the iteration, first iteration of VHS came from. And then it was just Brad and me putting together all of these, you know, reaching out to all of our horror filmmaker friends at that point and saying, here's what we want to do. And it was very, very divided at the beginning where it's like, it was just me and Brad. And then he brought on his friend, Zach Zeman, who's an EP on, I think still all of them to this day. And we would be kind of reading through all the pitches and figuring out all this stuff, but it was mostly just about working with like the people we were friends with and the people that we knew at the time that, you know, we hung out with every weekend and watched horror movies with. And that's basically everyone who's involved in the first VHS. Right. When you took pitches, did you tell the people pitching like what the budget Mm -hmm. that they would have is and like the runtime? It was so kind of nebulous at that point. We just knew we wanted them to be short. You know, we wanted to put something together that would be a full movie. Um, So the idea was like between 15 and 25 minutes. And we would see how that would work and see how that would fit together. Originally, there were like six, and then we decided to cut it down to five. And some of them would be either like we chased after the filmmaker and tried to bring them into the project, or, you know, once the first one happened, it was more of like trying to get people to pitch, to bring in pitches, like they would come to pitch us if they wanted to be involved. But then we still had a bunch of other people that we we kind of wanted to go after, like Eduardo and Greg from Blair Witch, obviously, 
you know, we, we knew from like film festival mm-hmm. circuit, they're the OGs, like this would be the perfect thing to have them involved in this kind of weird new iteration of trying to do found footage and see how it works. And originally we didn't have a name for it. It was just called like the bloody disgusting movie. And then I just remember we were sitting at Brad's one night and I was looking at all the VHS tapes he had like back behind the TV. And I was like, VHS, we got to call it VHS with the slashes for the dates, you know, and then it's basically just means video horror shorts, but we just never told anyone that because that kind of sounds stupid. But VHS with the slashes, <laughs> people get it because the slashes like back in the day, you know, you date your VHS tapes. You know, we just kind of wanted to try to make something that was new in the found footage genre too, because we were also over it at that point. And we watched so many things either that were submitted to us for the label or that were just like coming out that were just like pale imitations of Blair Witch in a way. And we are like, how do you take this like really kind of beaten to death genre and try to do something to make it new again. And a lot of it had to do with kind of like weird video nasty stuff that was happening in the UK that was more like these guys just going and they're like attacking women in the streets and stuff like that. And this was like a phenomenon that was happening around that time in the UK. And he's like, it's so messed up. And we're like, that has to be in there because it's the whole movie. Basically, the first one is about almost like the male gaze being terrified of women. <laughs> like if it's, if you really look at it, you know, it got into Sundance and once it got into Sundance, it kind of blew up. And then we were approached. Was that surprising? Cause I mean, at, oh, totally. at that time, none of the, like was Joe Swanberg already like kind of like a indie film darling. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah. Cause like he, and you know, he kind of came to us through Ty because we knew Ty, obviously, from like House of the Devil, like film festivals and stuff. But like he and Joe were really close because they were kind of on the festival circuit at the same time with like a lot of their movies back in the day, especially like at South by Southwest and stuff was really big champions of like the kind of mumblecore um, filmmakers. And Joe was kind of solidly in that camp and he wanted to try something in the horror arena. And plus Joe and Adam Wingard were also really good friends. And so they had done a bunch of other kind of movie stuff together. It's the same, you know, everyone's acting in each other's stuff. And if you're not acting in another friend's thing, you're holding the camera, you know, or like, I think I'm listed as like the set electrician on VHS even because you know, it's just like there's no, <laughs> sure. none yeah. of us know what jobs are at this point. Even then, you know, like even then it's still so small that like everyone does everything. And if you don't, then like you're kind of not on board. I remember even after I directed my first thing on Southbound, which was kind of like, we were like, how do we make VHS but more connected? on Southbound, like I did my segment. It was like my first time directing anything literally was Southbound. And it was great because I'm working with all these other directors and stuff. And we're all, you know, kind of cheering each other on through the process. And the second we finished my last day directing, like literally five minutes later, I was like scrubbing the toilets of our location. And there's a photo of me, like with my thing that says director and I'm fucking... Yes, scrubbing the toilets of this like black vomit shit that we had like put in the toilet. So like that's indie filmmaking, folks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And how did you get to direct that? Were you pitching? Is it like based on a concept that you pitched or For Southbound? Yeah. Basically, after I left that company to go work with um, Keith and Jess Calder over at Snoot, we did a couple of movies. Riley Stern's first movie, Faults, and um, Adam was doing the that you, you were producing. Yeah, 
that I was a co-producer on. Adam was doing the guest with them at the time. And then we did Devil's Candy right after that. And um, it was the month I paid off my student loans. And I was like, I want to direct. And they were like, go with God, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was like, yay, crash. But, you know, I, like I said, I lived under this mountain of debt from, from going to like kind of a business finance film school. And, um, I don't regret it, but at the same time, like it's, I couldn't do anything else except have a paycheck every week. The first two or three years I was a filmmaker, you know, and it's funny cause it's like, okay, that got into Toronto and you know, then there's all this other stuff I'm doing and I'm making like all these other movies that are like it fucking Sundance and shit. And I'm making like $10,000 a year, you know? Um, it's like, it's a very weird. Did Southbound premiere at Toronto? Yeah. Southbound premiered at Toronto at the same year as Devil's Candy, which was the one that I, last one that I co-produced with Snoot. But Brad actually came to me with that with Radio Silence, who we had done VHS, the first VHS with. And he was like, yo, we want to do another one. I don't understand how you, you are the producer, one of two producers on VHS that goes to Sundance and sells and is like a hit, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You're a director and producer on Southbound or just a director? Director and producer. And it premieres at Toronto. And does it sell out of Toronto? Uh, Yes, it did. Sold to the Orchard. I mean, I'm sure you're exaggerating about making $10,000 a year, but it's like I I was talking, I had lunch yesterday with the the Pierce brothers. They made this movie, The Wretched, and they were talking about Joe Vegas, who did Christmas Bloody Christmas. I love The Wretched. He was just on the podcast. and That's a great movie. They were saying like, no one... An indie film makes a lot of money, you know, like, and I know it's like silly to, to say that, that it's surprising, but you would think that most people don't make money, but the people that have the Sundance film and then the Toronto film, and then this film and you've heard <laughs> of movies you've heard they of, they must yeah, yeah. be able to buy a house or something. Okay. So XX was 2017. It was the second, it was probably the third movie I'd had at Sundance, either in a pre- in a producing capacity twice and then with excess it was the first time I was there as a both a producer and a director so that's 2017 I've now been directing for three years there is an RV in that movie that I kept because it was my backup in case I couldn't pay rent <laughs> so how does that seven years in how does that make sense somebody must be making I mean, I'm not saying anyone is getting like a hundred million dollars, <laughs> some money, but like right, when right. you sell a movie, you know, I feel like independent filmmaking is the long con. I think it's why people say if you can be anything else, be anything else. You have to love it because if you don't, you'll die. You have to love it with every fiber of your being, like you're drowning, or you're not going to have the endurance mm-hmm. to last it's a very up and down industry, you know? And Wait, can I ask you a very a personal question? Yeah. You don't have to answer it, but did you make more money from your TV directing than all of your indie film stuff combined? Yeah. Oh yeah. Easily. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that the reality, we, we all fell in love with independent film mm-hmm. as young people when it was a different market, when people were buying DVDs, when there weren't streamers, so you could sell rights to different parts of the world and you could amortize costs and it all made much more. There was a model is what I'm saying. And that model has eroded over the last two decades, basically. And now the way to survive is to make independent films that get you notoriety 
and that you love and maybe you win some awards and people see them and you parlay that notoriety into a career that is more lucrative and then you kind of rinse and repeat and you know you spend your summers making a movie that maybe you don't make a ton of money on but then you go do a couple netflix shows or a couple commercials or whatever and and that's the plan 100% i think that's like the that feels like the sustainable model i remember is i think penelope spiris said you do one for them and one for you from you know being kind of behind and a part of all of these filmmakers like kind of coming up i've watched them go from making $4000 movies to running television shows to having you know adams making his second godzilla versus kong right mm-hmm. now and what are those budgets like 180 million like evan katz just finished up his him you know him and adam have made a bunch of stuff together over the years and he just finished up like a big movie that him and simon were working on um that i know is like over 10 you know there's all all sure. ty just did two movies with a24 like there's all kinds of success stories it's just again it's like the long con you just have to you just have to dig in so and hold it, on and try at to what last point are you like you well maybe i can let the uh <laughs> the rv go Maybe that that RV can find a new home and I don't have to have a backup plan anymore. I sold that RV when I got my first episode of TV, which was, well, I shouldn't say first, like that's kind of a, I, I, it's weird. I don't think of creep show doing creep show for Shutter and AMC with Greg Nicotero. I don't think of that as a TV show because it's, it's creep show. You know, and it's still an anthology and it's still like individual stories and it's still its own its own story. It's a cool thing to do, but it wasn't like a it's it's not part of like a the TV mm-hmm. world, I guess you would say, or right. the TV model of this ongoing production of like hundreds of people and endless money. Just to recap, what I think I'm learning over the course of you know a few hundred episodes of this show is like it doesn't matter if you made the you know, like the number one horror film of the year, like even talking to the wretched guys that I think their movie was number one in the box office two weekends in a row. I mean, it was during COVID at, you know, at drive-ins, but in LA, you need to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to be like lower middle class, (laughs) you know, to live in a house and to have your kid in a school of some sort, right? Like now I'm not talking about fancy, like partying mountains in the hills, you know, Fancy house. I'm just talking about like a middle class normal yeah. person that like goes to soccer practice on the weekend, whatever, with the kids. It just sounds yeah. like all the indie filmmaking, no matter how many Sundance screenings they have or how many of this, and maybe there's a coda that sells for $20 million. Like once or twice a year, there's someone that's actually made a lot of money. But the only way to really make money as a director is to work on bigger budget things because you get paid more. It's like making these movies and even owning some of them and then going to festivals and winning them and getting distribution that doesn't cut it for like sustainable life. It's interesting. Cause it's, I, I think people see like the outliers and they think that that is what it is, you know, because for every story like mine, there's the story of like the Jordan vote Roberts who had Kings of summer and then made a Godzilla movie next. Right. But there's also the story of the, you know, guy that made three indie films and then went and became like a carpenter in Nebraska because the hustle wasn't worth it. The hard truth is that we've all known for a long time that it's I don't want to say a lottery ticket, but it is a long shot. And and I think to Rox's point, you know, you have to love it. 
So like certainly the show isn't about pulling punches or lying to people about the economics of filmmaking. And certainly they've eroded over the years. And hopefully a model emerges after the dust settles in about 20 years, give or take, you know, and either we're all just watching reality TV shows, Twitch streams or or movies still exist. Who knows? We'll we'll find yeah. out. <laughs> um, it's a long shot is basically the, the takeaway. Right. And talent, you know, especially talent that can connect with a huge audience will eventually be noticed and given big budgets. And at that point, you can start getting paid well enough to, to survive in a city like Los Angeles. But it's also like, I didn't come from like a, you know, I, I grew up in like rural Pennsylvania in a town of like 20,000 people. I knew no one here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I just drowned in student debt for like 15 years, which I don't recommend. It's not impossible. You know, it's not like I grew up here and knew some people or anything. It's important to point out though, that it's not that your skills aren't valuable. Like if you only wanted to make money, you could continue to just do that work. Right. But in order to level up, sometimes you have to make some sacrifices. Right. So you make an indie film and then you go to, like I said, a couple commercials or a TV show or, or whatever. And maybe the days of only getting to be an art filmmaker are gone because that model is different. But that's not to say that you can't continue to go back and forth and have a good life. Yeah. It's that kind of like. Again, the one for them, one for you, or like you yeah. try to sneak in the art house a little bit in their, in their commercial product, <laughs> if you can. Right. Well, let's talk about that sure. for a second. Yeah. How did you end up, you had a string of one for thems, right? With Riverdale, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, same uh, EPs, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. right? And then Nancy Drew, Pretty Little Liars. How did you insert yourself into like that TV world? I think I was lucky in that. Roberto, who is the showrunner of Riverdale and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and, and Pretty Little Liars, is an enormous horror mm. fan. So he's just a huge, he sees everything. He will reference movies I haven't heard of. And this is the only genre I've worked in in 15, 16 years. So I think that helped a lot that he was already aware of the stuff that I had worked on, either as a producer or, or as a filmmaker. Like he knew what it was, whereas like most I feel like showrunners would have no clue what any of any of the stuff I had done. It'd be way too below the radar. Um, that and I think it was just one of those man, you know, my manager or my agent had a connection to the person who was putting people in front of him. His producing director, Rob, he very much championed me as someone to bring on for the show because he also came up from like indie film. Rob Seidenglance really championed like bringing, bringing me in as an indie person who, cause it's, I'm sure it's hard. This is their baby. You know, this is a showrunner's baby. And it's, if I was a director and I had to turn over mm -hmm. my project to a director who had never done something within that realm, within that model of television or whatever, like I wouldn't want to do it either. So I understand the like hardness of for people to like break into this kind of thing when it's it's not the same thing. But I I do think when they think of the idea like TV people think of the idea of like, oh well they work in features, they're gonna be really slow. It's like <laughs> oh you're cute. Oh, that's mm -hmm. adorable. I shot a movie yeah. in 12 days. You shot a 30-minute TV show. Okay. 
don't recommend doing that while shooting a, a movie in 13 days or 12 days. But like, so there's this stigma to, for, for TV folk that they think independent filmmakers are like too much of an artist and that we will not be able to work under their schedules. And I think they're thinking of like studio film when they think filmmaker and they don't even understand the lengths to which we go to get our movies done. I just got lucky. Honestly, I think I just got lucky. And the fact that I had done Creepshow helped because it still counted as this kind of segue gateway TV. Because Nicotero is a big name, you know, mm-hmm. Walking Dead, obviously KNBFX, but <clears throat> in the TV world for Walking Dead. So that still kind of counted as TV, even though it wasn't really, you know. As soon as I was on there, the first two days, the first two days that I shot, he offered me Riverdale. So I kind of went right from oh, wow. Sabrina to Riverdale. And then that kind of starts you, the ball rolling of like, oh, once you've got more than one under your belt, you're now on the lists. Especially at this time, this is kind of when this started. And I hate fucking talking about this, but this is when this started of the like every, I feel like the entire TV industry looking around and being like, oh shit, we don't have any women. Oh, this looks bad. Uh, so they were looking to hire people like me at the time. And man, I fucking used that to my advantage I, as much as I could. I am not going to lie because I had been hired men or not hired many times for being a woman. So fuck yeah, I'm going to take advantage of them suddenly wanting to hire them. You put together this assortment of awesome horror directors, but they're all men, right? For, yeah. for so many years. Yeah. Even that. And that's, that is also a product of like the people that I met at the film festivals were all male directors. You know, I'm not saying there weren't female directors there in the horror <laughs> genre. I'd never say that being one myself, you know, but our visibility, I think, in the film festival world around 2008, 2009, there's also the Venn diagram of people who are in the film festival world where we were kind of pulling people from and people we knew, people who were available and people who were even interested in doing a found footage anthology <laughs> movie. That's like a small, a smaller and smaller bucket of people. It sounds like you like TV. Like what's the pros and cons? It's, I, you know, I've been talking about this a lot lately, I think. And it's, it feels like two different careers. It a hundred percent does. And it's, you're not doing the same job as a director in a feature film as you are in TV because it's kind of like for features I'm building the, in the house and in TV, somebody else is describing the house and then I'm building it, mm-hmm. you know, like you're kind of a middleman. Like you're the contractor. Yeah. You're the middleman contractor. Yes, exactly. You are the contractor and not the architect. That's exactly the best way I've heard it described. That is an excellent way to describe it. And it's, it is, it is an interesting, right now on this <laughs> it's an interesting thing though, because it's not, that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. And I get to try on other people's styles, which is something that like, I wouldn't get to explore because you only get to make so many features, you know? Um, I've had many fall apart. Mm-hmm. I've had many that have been very close and then one chunk of financing falls apart and then the rest of it does. And, you know, two or three years working on something and then nothing, it doesn't go anywhere. So you get less shots at making features than you do at making TV once you start getting episodes, because then you get called in for more episodes if you kind of prove yourself a, you know, someone who's competent and nice to other people on set and uh, can make your days and the show still looks good. That is the base qualifications that you need. Do you feel like you're 
your creative process is similar, like shot listing and oh, that? Kind of oh, yeah. figuring out where that, to put the cameras. 100%. And- it's just, um, I think it could get very easy to just coast in TV in terms of like the creative. It could get very easy to just go on autopilot or like phone it in um, on the creative side, mm-hmm. but that's not, that's not anything mm-hmm. I want to do you know, because it's still all kind of like kid in the candy store for me where I'm like, you have a steady cam every day. What? You have two cranes. Mm-hmm. What? Sure. Um, You're like, sure. can I just put my coffee on the steady cam? We're not going to need it for the camera. Today. Yeah. It's great. Like, sure. Yeah. I think they too really appreciate it when you come in and like, you're excited and that you actually want to try to do something cool with their show and not just like the standard TV coverage, as long as you're making your days. And as long as it fits in the visual style of the show, sure. you can basically do whatever you want. So you just kind of get to try on other, the skin of like a different yeah. creative voice in a way. It's, it's a neat trick. Cause then I can steal shit. I can steal some of that shit and put it in my own shit. Over the years, we've been talking to a lot of TV directors and I, I feel like maybe gone are the days of like, people who have like golf games they're trying to get to like i think like it, there's only room for hungry people at this point and like all of those people who are phoning it and they've either retired or gotten replaced entirely well but also the style of tv has changed with like That's you true. know breaking bad and 6 feet under and sure. um, even yeah. like like a riverdale yeah um, or nancy drew like they're they're not just shot like master close up close up overs like right yeah. i'm sure sometimes a scene that's how you get through it but Usually, you know, you get to do some cool opening shot and you get to do an insert or a camera move. We just like binged Wednesday and I'm like, you know, like you can get to be Tim Burton on a TV exactly. show. You know? I just did this show in New Zealand, too, called One of Us is Lying. That was like a total blast because they have so much like they're just moving the camera all over the place. And there there are a lot of these TV shows, I feel like, where there is this kind of tendency to just put the camera on the dolly and just do that slow drift for the master and then a slow drift. And it's like, I call it the, the sleepy cameraman. Cause it's mm-hmm. like in so many TV shows <laughs> that you're just like, why is this camera moving? What is that? Like, this is, what is this? I feel like most TV shows though have nowadays are, are pretty dynamic. Even, you know, like those big network shows, like the blacklist or whatever, you know, like it's hard for me to know, honestly, from like personal experience, because all the shows I do, they live in like a genre world. They're all this kind of like teen murder mystery or teen supernatural murder mystery. Mm-hmm. So there's all these genre elements, which means visual elements that are not going to be in your standard TV show outside of like the, I feel like Netflix kind of does have its own look. That's almost like a weirdly standardized look at this point for a lot of their shows, but I don't know. Are like procedurals, procedurals still shooting kind of just like master, uh, medium close up? Is it? I, I think they are. I think they are. I watched an NCIS the other day and I was like, Oh boy. Yeah. Well, we had a director, Brenna that directs like, <coughs> excuse me, all the Chicago shows. I had a few directors that do those, you know, the fires in it. I mean, my take, you know, I think obviously the directors are still trying to make each scene unique and feel special but there is like a way that their dialogue scenes are shot but to me i think like those are the shows where it's like okay this is how we shoot dialogue scenes and now it's an action scene yeah. and we get to shoot just put the camera at the best angles to see this explosion you know um and then it's a kind of handheld action almost docu style stuff so i feel like you get to kind of mix yeah. these styles together even yeah. though you know there's like a there's a little bit of a formula for how you shoot it but the, it's it's not a bad formula you know yeah 
I, you know, it, it's funny in, in talking to you, Rox, I feel like maybe I'm seeing a new arc for director careers because when, when you were describing the role of a director in an independent film where you're basically the buck stops with you, you're the person, the decision maker, the main stakeholder, and then you move to television where you have to answer to other people. It made me think that like, oh, when you're doing studio films, when you're into millions and mil- upon millions of millions of dollars, all of a sudden you have more stakeholders and more people to answer to as well. You know, I, I feel like my most jaded director friends will will sometimes like complain about being in customer service, right? Like that they, they have to answer to so many other people and it's like, okay, well, am I making a decision or am I just trying to please as many people as I possibly can to get through the day? And I wonder if maybe the arc is, is going to be indie features, prestige TV, and then into studio features, you know, I, you know, certainly we, there's not that many studio directors out there right now. So like, it's hard to see a pattern. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's what evolves. I'd love to talk just for a few minutes about, you know, the movie you came here to promote. There's something wrong with the children. It's a Blumhouse film. How did that come about? I mean, that's kind of like, obviously like the dream label to work in, in, in horror today, it seems like. How did you end up directing It's that? funny because you say the dream label. And I feel like there's like a couple of those and it depends on what side you fall on because there's Blumhouse, which is like this feels like the commercial version. Mm-hmm. And then there's like A24, which I think people think of as like the more prestige version of that dream in the genre. But A24 is not, I, I mean, I guess I don't think of A24 as like a horror. Oh, that's so weird. Label. Right? I guess that's because most of the movies I see of theirs are the mm-hmm. genre ones. So yeah, Warren's not like the first in line to see the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the whale, like what else? Everything yeah, everywhere yeah. all at once. Like, yeah. I, you know, they make awesome film, like Marcel the shell with shoes on. But for every one of those, for every one of those, there's, uh, you know, there's X, there's Pearl, there's Midsommar, there's a lamb. That's kind of like their one for them, one for us, I guess. Well, so there's something wrong with the children. So that came about through, it's kind of interesting because it's not on the feature side, it's on the TV side. So they have a couple of different series they were doing. So it's a weird hybrid of what I had been doing at that point on both features and TV that it's now this feature that's within this TV model because they're, you know, amortizing costs across mm. a bunch of productions that are shot down in New Orleans with like the same crews. So you're not really picking your oh, crew. You're not like even like DP and production designer and yeah, stuff. Those are all kind of, they're just assigned. You're inheriting all of it. Yeah. Which was kind of their original model that was like, we can make four movies for the price of three. And it was because you just shared the whole crew the whole way through. Yeah. So now it's just that on their TV side. And this in this iteration for like MGM Plus, which was Epics at the time, and uh, Blumhouse, we'd just been talking about doing, you know, something together. I had been set up with a meeting with their TV department through my manager. And uh, I think he had another client who had done one of the series mm. early on, Emma Tammy. She had done one or two of them in this model. Uh, I think either for Amazon or for Hulu for that series for for them. So I was kind of on their generals list, I guess, as like a filmmaker that would be interested in this kind of thing. And we just went back and forth. But I sent them a couple scripts. They sent me a couple scripts. This is the one that I responded to and that they were looking for someone at the time. So it just was kind of the, the pieces fell together. 
So they sent the script to you? They sent me the script. The one I had sent them that I thought fit within the model didn't work because it mm. needed the ocean, basically. It was just the campground along the ocean, this whole other story, whatever. But like for mm-hmm. shooting in New Orleans, it didn't work. So it wouldn't fit in this model. So, But they were like, oh, you like shooting outdoors. Okay, we get it. Here, look at this one. And that's what uh, at the time mm. was called the ravine. No ravines in the river, river deltas of Louisiana either. Um, so I was a little confused, but, uh, all the bones of the story are there and the dynamics and the script were great. So I was like, oh shit, this is great. This is kind of about motherhood and without being like another Rosemary's baby knockoff that I would get sent all the time. So that was cool to me, you know, that it was like more about this kind of ambivalence Mm -hmm. towards that idea. Then when we were kind of, you know, the way everything happens in production, it's like, okay, well, here's our script. It's great. But now we can only do two thirds of that because you only have 22 days and you're working with, you know, kids and they can only be on set for like four hours a day. How old are the two kids? Nine and 10 years old. And Louisiana has the strictest child labor laws. I mean, (laughs) child labor laws are great. I'm not going to, but even they're like worse than SAG when it comes to like their, their labor laws. We just couldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. couldn't have them after 8 PM. Couldn't have them more than four hours a day. There's all these different stipulations. They can only be on set for like you know, an hour and a half before they have to take breaks. And there's all these night scenes. Like half the movie takes place at night (laughs) and the kids are in almost every single scene. So I had to rewrite like eight different drafts of the script to like get it cut down to the size that it needed to be that we could actually shoot it. And it just kind of really changed a lot of the DNA of it. And a lot of it was just figuring out how do I make it feel like the Mm -hmm. kids are there when the kids are not there? So it's a lot of trickery of like, you know, using sound design. And shooting a lot of very tricky blocking to make sure that you can kind of get away with the kids not being there anymore and you just don't realize that they're not there anymore. So you're saying you would block scenes such that you could shoot around the absence of kids. So you'd you'd shoot the kids out first and then they would say go away to lunch or to the set teacher. Mm -hmm. When you said it was four hours of work, is it four hours in total of shooting time and they can be on set for much longer to walk us through about the amount of shooting time that I would get was about four hours because we had their, we had their school right nearby, but it's still, you know, they have to be their out time is like, they have to be like back at their house by that time. It's not like you Mm. yell cut at that time. So you have to pad Mm -hmm. all this room, even just for like traffic. You have to pad rooms <laughs> for sure. everything. And and you can bank hours too, which is another weird thing. Like you try to bank as much school as possible because they have to get a certain number of hours of school. And if they don't get that, you are in a lot of trouble. So on a Blumhouse film of this type, you know, part of the series, how in control are you of the casting as the director? That is, yeah, it's interesting because like the editor, I got to choose my editor. I got to bring on my composers who I don't go anywhere without. <laughs> we did end up using the guys who do the VFX on all of my movies for this one too. So those were kind of like the three that I got to. Oh, cool. What company is that? Uh, It's Soapbox Films. They do a lot of stuff for like Marvel and DC and they do a lot of stuff with the Muppets, weirdly enough. John McGallery, I think might be mispronouncing his last name, was our casting director. And they already have a casting director for the entire series, but you know, he put forth some ideas and we got auditions in. We all kind of put together our lists and stuff like that. And he's like, here's people who are kind of within our budget who also would be interested or I know are looking for something like this. He was great. 
I think he had originally brought up Zach and the radio silence guys, Matt and, you know, Matt and Chad and Tyler had worked with Zach on uh, devil's do. So I hit them up and was like, yo, tell Zach, I'm not like a serial killer. And, you know, Blumhouse is sending him this and he's worked with Blumhouse on this kind of like smaller budget stuff before. So he kind of knows the drill, which is great for someone who's done so much other stuff that, you know, might be more used to kind of like big, bigger sets and bigger stuff like that. And he was like totally down. And so we kind of met and just talked through character and stuff like that. And Amanda Crew actually sent in an audition, which I was blown away by. Are you serious? Awesome. Yes. One, I was blown away that she sent in an audition at all because, you know, I just assume Amanda's offer only. Two, her audition was so great. She's so fucking great. And I had asked, I think I asked her about it later. And she was like, I just like audition. You know, I like acting. So like, I'm getting yeah. some stuff. I want to put it on tape. I want to see what it, you know? So she, I just love that. Like an actor is like, I just want to do it to do it. You know? Can you just tell us a little bit about like working with nine-year-old kids and like kind of any advice you have on how to get them to like, you know, be murderous and have blood all over <laughs> them without traumatizing them for life? Honestly, I think that was their favorite part. <laughs> I think that was their favorite part of the whole thing. Why, why do you say that? Because they had so much fun doing it. Mm-hmm. They're still excited mm-hmm. that there's like someone's bringing them snacks. You know what I mean? And I don't mean that it's in like a shitty cool. way, but like in it, like yeah. it makes you realize that like, oh, this is fucking crazy what we do. It's so weird. It's got to be so cool to look at this with like fresh eyes, you know? I mean, I still have that like a giddiness of being on set, but no, I think love of it from like a kid's eyes. It's just like such it's an so amazing cool. idea. Yeah. And so they're playing dress up. They loved it. Was there ever a challenge with keeping them in the moment, right? Like if they're doing these sinister things and no. it's so fun, they're just always kind of zeroed no. in on the role. Uh-uh. Yeah. Children are so present. You know, mm-hmm. I love working. This has been, I love working with kids and I love working with animals and I love doing stunts and I love shooting outdoors. All the things that you're not supposed to do are my favorite things. Hell yeah. For various different reasons. The thing with the kids is that they are so present and they have so, like, their ego is not there. And I don't mean that in terms of like an arrogance or anything against, like, in the way that you would think of ego. I mean, like, they're they're all almost id in mm-hmm. a way so they're very they're, they're present and they're themselves. very yes they're not judging themselves they're not self-conscious at all you know mm-hmm. they're willing to try like all kinds of goofy weird shit and then they just do weird stuff on camera <laughs> that you're like what is this what is he even doing right now you know but it's just like such a weird kid thing to do is whatever it is that they're doing but is there like some rule in horror that like the more adult a kid acts like the scarier they are (laughs) or is that not i think so they're both very good at you know they're also like bouncy and very like polite and but like the minute like the they know it's rolling they are very aware that like the ticking time and that they're under um because they always wanted to be on set and they knew the more that we got to shoot then the more they'd be able to come back and be on set so they were very good about like once they were on set, it wasn't fooling around. It's like, we're right to work. The creepiness was like the easiest thing for them to dial in. Like with any actor, it's like you want to relate some sort of life experience. It's just they have less life experience. So you have to think of other ways. And it's more to me about like talking about emotion and like the feeling that they're in in the moment mm-hmm. and what's happening, you know? And a big, <laughs> a big one for me was that like, just you're fucking with like your little sister and you don't want your parents to know 
it's the, I'm not touching you game, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like everyone knows that as a kid, if like you had any siblings at all, you know, those dynamics, like we're so evil to each other. They kind of had so much fun with that idea, I think, and running with that and just, yeah, the evil part is like, I feel like every kid plays like some evil character in their head at some point as a kid, like everything's cops and robbers. So this was just a, we were just playing all day to them. It was great. I wanted them on set every minute. Well, this is awesome. It's coming out on digital and on demand on January 17th. The MGM Plus release is on March 17th. So we're super stoked and congrats. And do you have just a minute to join us for our unpaid endorsements segment? Oh, yeah. Unpaid endorsements. I've been making these weird little models lately. And I feel like it's like the Instagram algorithm got me and a bunch of my friends where we were Mm -hmm. suddenly all getting like ads for these book nooks. Have you seen these yes. things? A hundred percent. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. convert a wall into a book. No, it's like these Are little mini cool? no, models no, no, no. that go in your it, bookcase. It's a little book and it's like Diagon Alley yes. or oh, like oh, Sherlock yes, yes. Holmes or whatever. Oh, you yeah, yeah. build those? I thought you just yeah, buy you the build whole them. thing done. No, dude, you build, you build them. Is it fun? It's so fun. It looks fun. so fun. It is like so labor intensive and like tiny detailed things. And I think as a filmmaker, it's like your brain, like I feel very scattered a lot of the time. And it's like such a great way to like be very focused and very concentrated, but also like shut your brain off at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just follow mm-hmm. like, I, it's like doing a puzzle yeah, and you flip the page and it's like, okay, I glue part seven onto C six. Okay. You know, and it's like, that's what you're doing for the next minutes or whatever. And like, that's, that sounds incredible. My unpaid endorsement is actually a re-endorsement. Do you guys listen to the podcast, The Town? No, no. It's about Hollywood. It's nice and short. It's like 20 to 30 minutes. And it's just like a quick little interviews. And then a little bit of like current events, basically every single episode. I love it. It makes me feel connected to what's going on in like the studio world in a way that I haven't felt in a long time. I feel like I like have a raised awareness of what's happening in the business, even if it doesn't necessarily affect me in any tangible way. Like it's a little fun and a little romantic to me. It feels a little old school. The dream of what I thought Hollywood was going to be like when I was a kid it gives me a little bit of that feeling, but also I think is pretty educational and kind of keeps you up to date on what's going on. The town is the show. Let me recommend Jason Blum's episode from a few months back now. It was great, actually. It's like really, really good. Oh, on the town? On the town. Well, I've already endorsed this on Instagram, but like I've been, I really like the everything but the bagel, cashew, uh, the nut duo. It's cashews and almonds with everything but the bagel. Uh, mix that there you it's really hit or miss people are like yeah you like these what's the big deal well the big deal is that trader joe's has this everything about the bagel seasoning that you know everyone knows is like life-changing and put it on like a bagel with cream cheese it's like you don't need to ever talk to a human being again and you'll still be happy but then they made this whole line of all these other things with this everything but the bagel flavor and most of the things actually are really disgusting like the potato chips not recommended but i i just went out on a limb i the nut duo, I just, I was like, what, how can you go wrong with cashews and almonds? They're, they're really amazing. I like ate like an entire bag, probably like 7,000 calories. Wait, uh, so you're saying it's everything <laughs> seasoning on cashews and almonds? Is that what you're saying? Yep. It's called the like a yeah, mixed everything nuts. with a big old nut duo. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, it's, gotcha. it's a duo, two nuts. Spin off. So that's, that's what I got for today. 
If people want to keep tabs on what you're doing, all the cool projects that you've got coming out, what's the best way to be aware of all your goings on? Probably Twitter. Instagram. Little Twitter. bit of Instagram. I'm not on Instagram that much anymore, but yeah, Twitter or Instagram. Does anyone, has anyone found anything else? Like I can't do, I can't do TikTok, man. I can't do it. I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to talk. You're at rocks underscore and underscore B. Yes. Well, you can find us across all social media. We're at Just Shoot It Pod. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Roxanne, we're happy to forward them on to her. You can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan and on Twitter at SmiteyPyleg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. And produced by Tyler Small. Thanks, Tyler. And you're listening to music by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.